The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So just a couple things before I get into the sermon. This will be the last time that I preach uh, uh, to you for a while. I'm going to be taking a writing sabbatical this summer for six or seven weeks. Um, I have a five-year deadline on my Isaiah commentary, and I've been endlessly ribbed by others that have written in that series saying I'm bringing up the rear. So it's due in August, and uh, I'm grateful to the elders for an opportunity to concentrate and work on it, and also looking forward to hearing the ministry of the word from the elders. So I'll be here, uh, our family will be here those weeks, and we'll be ministering in all other ways, but just I won't be preaching. So pray for me that I would be able to just have the gift of brevity. Uh, the commentary's done, it's just 30% too long. And uh, well, you know that problem, you have to endure it just about every week. Um, so, uh, but that's what I'm doing. Um, also, I'm delighted to see our China team back. I'm looking especially at the team that came back at 4.45 this morning. You guys are still awake. I'm going to be looking at you throughout the ser sermon and seeing if those eyes are open. I see that you've got your coffee there, so uh, keep going. But we're glad to have all of you here. Uh, this morning, I get to preach on parenting. And so you know how in Ephesians 5, for a section of the time, the husbands get to elbow the wives, and then the next week, the wives get to elbow the husbands. So I guess this morning, I suppose the children get to elbow, elbow the parents. Mom and dad, pay attention now. Listen carefully. But I want you to know, I, I, I'm not sure who exasperates who more in parenting the parent-child relationship, because I have been thoroughly exasperated by my children from time to time. And I know that I have also exasperated them. But we turn to the Word of God this morning to be blessed. And we really yearn to hear from Scripture what godly parenting is all about. And I want to resume a theme that I began last week because it's been much on my mind, especially with the China team coming back and with the heart that all of us should have for the global expanse of the gospel. I often think in my mind of the vision that the Apostle John had of the finish line of this election that we have talked about in, in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God uh, chose his children, his uh, people, that he would adopt them at the right time. And he had all of human history in his mind. Ephesians 1 teaches this very plainly. But then you get in, in Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, after, after that I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are the redeemed. Now, what a sight that's going to be. They were elect from before the foundation of the world. They were chosen in Christ. And they will be there in heaven with clear emblems of their purity, clothed in white, wearing palm branches of, or holding palm branches of victory and they're waving and they're giving all credit and glory to Jesus, the Lamb who died for them. But then in the text in Revelation 7, 13, it says, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And as I did last week, I want to upload in your mind again another question, how did they get there? What is the story that will be told in heaven of how those elect actually came 
to saving faith in Christ. Now, I love thrilling conversion stories. I love, of course, we all love the story of Saul of Tarsus and how breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples the very morning of the day he was converted gives us incredible courage and boldness in evangelism, thinking if that man in that mental state can be converted on that day, anyone can. But I think about, about all others that have been converted. We're going to have the chance to hear their stories and, and to rejoice in them. I read a story, a, a book once called Death of a Guru. And it was an extended testimony of a, a, a Brahmin caste Hindu. He'd come from a long line of Brahmin pieces, uh, priests. His name was Rabi Maharaj. He was trained as a yogi and he meditated for many hours each day. But he became disillusioned and depressed by Hinduism. Heard the gospel and was radically permanently transformed by it and became a a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. I look forward to meeting him and hearing his testimony. I love those kind of testimonies. Or you know Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Easter, The Case for Christ and a number of other books. He was Yale educated in law. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He was an avowed atheist. Uh, But he was converted to Christ when he began investigating Christianity to debunk it. You know how many people there would be like that in heaven? I think Josh McDowell was the same way. They're going, these apologists, they, they go after Christianity to debunk it. And the more they get into it, the more powerful and compelling it seems. And they end up being converted. C.S. Lewis was similar. He was an atheist, an intellectual enemy of the gospel. He eventually became what he called, quote, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. End quote. He'd been fighting Christ and, and the overwhelming truth of the scripture until he could fight no longer and was saved wonderfully. And so I want to hear all of those stories. Or I think about bold missionary endeavors and these courageous missionaries like William Carey and Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor, John Patton, Elizabeth Elliot, and all of these great brothers and sisters in Christ. And I was reading a story about the first convert in India under William Carey. He was a man named Krishna Paul. He came to faith in Christ when he slipped on a river bed, a muddy river bed, and dislocated his shoulder. He had already become disillusioned with, with Hinduism. And was starting to focus on theism through Islam. But he heard about this, this, missionary, uh, th- this missionary compound, this community. And they had some medical knowledge there. His shoulder was dislocated. And he was brought to the, to the missionary compound. And a, a doctor there working with William Carey named John Thomas. Took care of his shoulder and spoke to this man Krishna about Christ. And he began coming regularly and hearing the gospel. This is after Carey had been there for seven years with no fruit. And Carey and his team led him to Christ. And when this news emerged, all of this man's Indian friends began to mob him and attack him and persecute him. But he eventually ended up leading dozens and dozens of them to Christ. And in heaven, we're going to hear stories about brothers and sisters like this. Or I think about heroic um, traveling evangelists like George Whitfield or Billy Graham that have led so many people to Christ. I love reading of uh, the stories of... of uh, Arnold Dallimore wrote a, a biography of Whitfield and how he crossed the Atlantic Ocean 13 times and all of the detailed stories of, of people up and down the colonies, the coast, this is before the American Revolution, just clamoring to hear the gospel through George Whitfield and being converted. Or in 1957, I, I read the story of Billy Graham's New York City crusade. And you really should Google the photo of, of Billy Graham preaching in Times Square, New York. I think that will never be repeated again. Uh, Several hundred thousand people crammed into Times Square, a black and white photo, and Billy Graham about to preach the gospel. 
And the fruit of that 110-day crusade there, 2 million people heard the gospel and over 50,000 claimed to have come to faith in Christ. And we're going to want to hear all of those stories. But as I said last week, by far the most productive means by which the elect are converted, soundly converted, is Christian parenting. Now, I don't know the percentages. I guessed at 60, 55, 60, 70 percent. Who knows? Who can tell? But I want to focus all of you parents on the incredibly high calling that the Lord gives you when he brings a baby into your life, when he brings a child into your home. The, the high calling that you have to bring those children to a saving faith in Christ. I believe that God uses the Christian family generations down the line from when William Carey or Adoniram Judson or John Patton come to an area to establish a multi-generational testimony to Christ and bring many, many to faith in Christ. Missionaries in that case build the bridge, but the parents are the key to that multi-generational structure that gets built, uh, built up. Everyone that I've talked to has said that this is true. By far the most effective kind of evangelism there is in the world is parent-child evangelism. Nothing is even close. Far more effective than workplace evangelism, contact evangelism, or anything else. And so we want to embrace this concept that the Great Commission starts at home. The Great Commission that Jesus gave to us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The most effective disciple-making all around the world is done at home, making disciples of your own children, and teaching them to obey everything, that comprehensive obedience that parents get to teach their children. So this morning, as I did last week, I'm advocating that you embrace you who are parents of growing children, embrace this pattern that's given us in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. As for you, Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You hear that? The people who taught it to you and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see the beautiful combination of the in-depth close relationship of the evangelizers and this word that you've known from infancy, how beautifully that comes together in Christian parenting. Now, I need to give a few caveats. I was talking to a, a dear brother this week and I wanna say a few things what I do not mean in saying all of this. First of all, I do not mean that we don't need evangelism and missions outside the home. I, I do hope you know that. When I say 55 to 60% maybe get converted at home, you know that leaves 40 to 45% that don't, if those numbers are true. They need evangelists and missionaries. So we absolutely have to be faithful. I was not brought to an evangelical understanding of the gospel by my parents. I was led to faith in Christ by a fraternity brother at age 19 in Boston at Sigma Chi at MIT. That's who led me to Christ. And so I absolutely believe in evangelism and I believe in missions. So we're not saying that, nor do we say that every child who is raised in a godly Christian home will themselves become godly followers of Christ. We know the heartbreaking reality of how many break away from what their parents taught and exemplified and do not walk with Christ. We know that that's true. And Jesus himself said it was going to happen. In Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 37, he said these words, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies 
will be the members of his own household. And then he said this, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So our top loyalty is always going to be to Christ. We know, sadly, that many children do rebel and do not follow their godly uh, parents. That's, why, that's how whole movements like the Moravians and the Puritans, the New England Puritans, fall apart after a few generations because the ch- children don't follow in the godly footsteps of their parents. That's how in a country like the Czech Republic and all that, it's 99% atheist, whereas in generations before, there were far more Christians because the younger generations did not follow in the gospel. So we know that. But there are many, many things that we parents can and should be doing to enrich our children's lives with the gospel. And that's what I'm going to preach about today. So we've got before us in this text, I'm zeroing in on verse 4 alone. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So here we have the eternal accountability of parents. Now the word, the text says fathers. We stick with that word. It's a good translation. And so the primary responsibility for bringing up the children goes to the fathers. But we know that the the, the Greek word used here can be extended to include mothers as well. So we can think of this in terms of parents. But we continue to embrace the headship and submission pattern of marriage in Ephesians 5. And say that the father is the primary, uh, the one primarily responsible for this this, uh, ministry in the home. But mothers are in view uh, too, definitely, biblically. Think about the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 6, 20 and 21 says, My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So you've got the father's command, the mother's teaching. They're working together, the father and the mother, in the godly nurturing of the children. Bind them upon your heart, he says, forever, and fast them around your neck. So we think about godly mothers in the Bible and godly mothers throughout church history. You think of Timothy with his mother Eunice and how she with her mother Lois brought Timothy up in the faith. We think about heroic mothers in church history like Felicitas in ancient Rome who had seven sons who with her, all of them on the same day were martyred by Marcus Aurelius. And how she had raised them up to be Christians and they all maintained their Christian confession even at the price of their own lives. Or Monica, you know the story of Monica with her son Augustine, one of the most famous conversion stories in all of church history but it was his godly mother who wept and prayed for him as he was wandering so badly in paganism and philosophy and sexual immorality and she was just heartbroken and would continue to pray and he mentions her quite prominently in his confessions when I think about Susanna Wesley and her children uh, John and Charles Wesley the most famous of her children she gave birth I think 19 times the records are a little sketchy 10 of them survived into childhood think about that nine not surviving into childhood but that's just how it was back then with infant mortality and other things that would take children but Susanna Wesley was a beautiful mixture of piety and practical godliness in her home I picture a home of of high energy high powered intelligent kids And it's said that she would sit in the center of the living room on a chair with her apron over her head. That was her prayer closet. Kids were to leave her alone for that time while she was praying. I don't know how well that worked, but at any rate, that's what she did. But she made it a point to spend one hour a week evangelizing and discipling each of her children, pouring into each one as they were growing. And then there's Charles Spurgeon with his mother. Uh, Spurgeon gives this testimony. He said, I cannot tell how much I owe to the solemn words of my good mother. I remember on one occasion her praying thus. Now, Lord, 
If my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. She was praying that out loud. Spurgeon said, that thought of my mother's bearing a swift witness against me pierced my conscience. How can I ever forget when she bowed her knee and with her arms about my neck prayed these words, Oh, that my son might live before thee, O Lord. So we have in view, I think, godly parenting, both fathers and mothers. But we're going to zero in, especially on the responsibility of the fathers, to evangelize and disciple their own children. We start in this text in verse 4 with the negative. There's a prohibition here. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And then the positive, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We've seen this throughout this practical section of Ephesians, from Ephesians 4 through 5 and now into 6. The negatives, do not do this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. We get the same pattern here. So we have this prohibition. Do not provoke your children to anger. So what this means is that fathers are limited in their authority over their children. They're limited by the word of God. The father is the highest human authority over the child, with the mother second in command. But parental authority is not absolute. There are limits to parental authority, and there are also limits of parental responsibility. So fundamentally, we just need to get across, your children are not yours, ultimately. They belong to God. They belong to God. For he alone made them, he alone sustains them, he alone can save them, and he alone will judge them. They belong to God. I think about what Job said in Job 10, verses 10 through 12. He said, did, speaking to God, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness, and in your providence you watched over my spirit." So he's saying, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So fathers are restrained in their authority by the higher authority of God. Our children belong to God. Now let me say a tender word to any of you who might have the extreme tragedy of burying a child, if that should ever happen. It's been a time of tremendous temptation to parents, grieving parents, to find fault with God at times like that. To rage an accusation against God for taking my child from me. This is where I want to say to you again what I've been saying to you. They are not yours. They belong to God. They belong to God. And we can never rail against God if he should choose in his providence to take one. I don't think there are any trials that we could face in life that are as as poignant and and wrenching as burying a child. I, I think that's one of the hardest things that can ever happen. So I'm not minimizing the pain that one feels. But you're not in any way helped by yielding to Satan at that moment and turning away from the God who alone can minister to you and bring you comfort and sustaining grace at that time. And Job knew this. Job lost 10 children in one day. Think about it. I mean, it's just staggering to me. Seven sons and three daughters in one day. And he said about that, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, he did not find any fault with God or charge God with wrongdoing. So all of our parenting should be done in light of God's greater ownership 
and greater responsibility over our children. That's vital. They belong to God's. So what is the prohibition? Let's look at it. It says, do not provoke your children to anger. The NIV has, do not exasperate your children. I know well when some of my children learned the word exasperate, because then I heard it often. <laughs> we'll get to all that, um, because I'm going to couch uh, the terms here so that parents are not hindered by the sermon I'm preaching today. I'm hoping to help. All right, but exasperate, I think it's a potent word, but uh, more literally, provoke your children to wrath. Don't give them a reason for reasonable anger. There is righteous indignation. Don't give them a reason for that. And don't tempt them to unrighteous anger either. That's what we're looking at here. Don't be a cause for your children to rebel and run from Christ and from the gospel because of your bad example and your bad parenting. So the focus here is the tender hearts of your children. Children can become discouraged. They can become dismayed. They can become beaten down, repressed, and ultimately enraged by bad parenting. We desire instead to cherish and nurture and love our children. The child must be brought to broken-hearted repentance over sin, to faith in Christ, to a deep love for God and for the Word of God and a pattern of obedience to it. That's what we're trying to do. Now, let me say a, a cautionary word here. Just because a child is angry at his parents, especially at moments of discipline, doesn't mean their parents are to blame. You know that, don't you? Parents, you definitely know that. Kids tend to get provoked to anger easily whenever any consequences for sin are brought to them. So it's not necessarily the case but that you, when your kids are angry that you've sinned or done anything wrong. They may just need to get quiet and go pray and, and see that they're the ones that have sinned and the parents are just trying to be faithful parents. But we need to look at what Paul's prohibiting because there is something that he is prohibiting here. So what, I want to get into specifics. What provokes children to wrath? What exasperates children? Well, number one, I'm going to go kind of the opposite direction because all the rest are going to lean on the other side. But number one, just lack of discipline at all. Lack of discipline at all. Just letting them roam free and never challenging or crossing their wills. That ironically in the end will provoke them to wrath. Most of the injunctions I'm about to give seek to restrain from doing discipline too harshly or too abundantly or in a way that will provoke them to wrath. But it's ironically true that no discipline at all will end up feeding their fleshly nature, their fleshly pride, and their rebellious hearts and make them children of wrath serving the devil. So you definitely want to cross their sinful wills and discipline them when they sin. You definitely want to do that. As it says in Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews picks up various proverbs on discipline in Hebrews 12. when he says that's how our heavenly father treats us. He disciplines us when we need it for our sins. And as a matter of fact, if he doesn't discipline you, you're an illegitimate child. You're not a true son or daughter of God. He will not allow you to just go off into sin. He's going to pull you back. And if some have called it, take you to the divine woodshed. He will do hard things in your life. Hebrews 12. And in that, he's quoting the book of Proverbs. So, to not discipline at all is to provoke them to wrath. However, beyond this, there's an array of wrong ways to discipline uh, and train a child. Ways that will provoke them to anger. Secondly, on the other hand, excessive strictness will provoke a child to wrath. Some parents see the overall laxness of parental discipline in our culture. And they overreact 
uh, in the opposite direction. They feel the more strictness, the better. I don't know why, but I was reminded of the old woman in the shoe. You remember her, Mother Goose? I, I read this with new eyes this week. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread, whipped them all soundly, and sent them to bed. I'm thinking that's not good parenting. And it says right in the rhyme she doesn't know what to do. So be saturated in the word of God, you will know what to do, and it's not that. So excessive strictness. The great danger here, of course, all humor aside, is abuse. It can become abusive. Even corporal punishment, we know, can become abusive. Because there have been those extremes, some would seek to eliminate corporal punishment as even being legal at all. Some nations have done that, made it illegal. I think that's obviously going too far. But it is possible that some of it can become abusive. Thirdly, a lack of love for the children provokes them to wrath. A cold, emotionally distant, loveless parenting, never holding the children, never cherishing them, never telling them how much you love them, or perhaps, let's just say, not enough. Uh, so stern, so angry with them, failing to find your joy in their blessing. Just like I asked between husbands and wives, I said, husbands, ask your wife, do you feel loved by me like Christ loved the church? Well, maybe you need to do that with your children. Do you feel that I delight in you, that I'm glad that you're in our home, I'm glad you're in my life? Do you feel that? Sorry, there was a wedding yesterday. I get like this. Anyway, do you, do you tell them regularly how much you love them? You know, time goes by like, like the wind. The days just go by. And you won't have that chance anymore to hold them and to tell them. So loveless parenting. Fourthly, hypocrisy in the parents can provoke them to wrath. Christianity not being genuinely lived out before them in the home. Children are observing you constantly. No matter what you're doing. Good or ill. <laughs> They see it all. They are astute observers and imitators. That's how they grow. And they can smell out the inconsistencies. If you say you love God, quoting 1 John, if you say you love God and do not keep his commandments, you are a liar. Your children will see that lie. So it provokes them to wrath when you are hypocritical, when you are acting pious and godly at church, and then at home you're not living it out. That will provoke them to wrath. Fifthly, parenting in anger, sinful anger. Uh, remember I spoke a number of weeks ago about carnal anger. Be anger, angry, but do not sin. So I made a distinction between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. I said that unrighteous anger is frequently motivated by pride or inconvenience. By pride or inconvenience. That really comes to roost in parenting. Your kid embarrasses you out in public and they get it at home. Why? Because you have their best interest at heart. You're trying to train their character, shape their souls. No, you were ashamed. You were embarrassed. That's why. And so you parent at that moment in anger or discipline in anger. I believe that parents, especially if you're administering the rod, you're administering corporal punishment, you must make certain you're not angry at all. You go get yourself under control. You go be spirit-filled. You make sure you remember what this is all about. It's their souls. You're trying to see them come to faith in Christ. You, they're not yours. They're going to stand before God and not you on judgment day. And so you're not their savior. You're not their, their king. You're their parent. And so calm yourself down. 
The thing they broke through childishness is not worth all of that. And so calm yourself down and then go back and do the discipline as needed and do it wisely and consistently. Sixth, injustice. Injustice. Injustice provokes a child to wrath. Sometimes the parent, parental discipline, the parents, sorry, discipline mechanically with no opportunity for the child to be heard, no opportunity to express his or her side of the story. The parent may feel that the child has no right to speak. Children should be seen and not heard, that kind of thing, especially at moments like that. All they must do is listen and submit. However, we celebrate in our legal system the writ of habeas corpus and the fact that no one uh, may be accused of a crime, oh, no one accused of a crime and can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What that means is that their case has to be heard. And we celebrate that out in public. And so I would just urge parents to give your child an opportunity to make his or her case within reason. I've noticed they'll make it as long as it takes. <laughs> they'll filibuster. <laughs> I've seen all kinds of things going on. All right? But if they have never had a chance to tell their side of the story, that is frustrating, can provoke a child to wrath. Now, again, a child may feel that any discipline is unjust. We hear often about our injustices at home, all right? But some of it can be. And if you are parenting or disciplining unjustly, it can provoke a child to wrath. Seventh, excessive protection. Excessive protection. It is a dangerous world you brought children into. It's physically dangerous and it's spiritually dangerous and you know it. And it's right for you to want to protect your children. But there is a pattern of excessive protection some parents seek to remove their children in every way from all the dangers of the world. They're extremely protective. They keep them close at all times. And so the operative word is no. No to everything. So as they grow and develop and they experience things in life, they're going to get hurt. And we want to protect them, but ultimately only God can do that. Number eight, excessive control. Some parents expect absolute obedience to parental commands throughout every moment of the child's life at home. Well, this is in one sense the biblical standard, as we said, all the way, right away with a happy spirit. That is the biblical standard. The problem comes when the parent covers the growing child's life thick with commands. And there's, it's inevitable that almost anything that happens at that point is going to be some pattern of disobedience. And so that's difficult. That's a challenge. Parents have to be sure not to become control freaks. Especially as the child grows and rightly needs to make more and more decisions for him or herself. There's like, a, as I've said, a dimmer switch. And so more and more they're going to need to be able to make their own decisions. And they're going to need to be able to fail. To make bad decisions. They need to be permitted to mess up. And still be loved. Martin Lloyd-Jones was speaking in, in his context in England of adult men and women that he knew never got married because it would displease their parents. I mean, that's unbelievably selfish on the part of the parents, as though the children were born exclusively for them. You know, you can especially think of, of women growing, and they just want to be, you know, the father keeps them close, and they just, the dad just never lets go. And so she miss, misses her opportunity and goes on through and never, and never gets married. But there are actually just many examples of the, the temptation we parents have to be, becoming control freaks. And just absolutely down to the smallest detail controlling things of our children's lives. Nine, failure of parents to encourage children. If the parents hardly ever encourage but are instead always pointing out failures, ways it could have been done better, 
the child's going to feel about his father or mother, I just can never make him happy. I mean, it's never enough. No matter how well I do every day, it's just never enough to make him happy or her happy. Number 10, unreasonable expectations of achievement. Some parents put extreme pressure on their children to achieve. They're really, in some ways, just living out their ego through their children, pushing them to excel. This could be in academics, it could be in athletics, music, could be in Christianity, in just, just living out the Christian faith, pushing hard. The children then become little performing monkeys, and often the last uh, issue comes up as well. The parents rarely encourage the child because they're pushing them on to even higher and higher levels of achievement. And so that can be very provoking to wrath. Eleventh, inconsistency in discipline. Sometimes the parent, parent is strict, sometimes they're lenient. Sometimes they espouse a family uh, uh, value, and other times they ignore it, back and forth. The standards become murky. The child really doesn't know what the parents want or expect. So it's hard to know. Now, if you can just pause and see now the incredible difficulty and uh, humbling of parenting. All right, so which is it? All right, are we supposed to be extremely consistent but not overly strict in discipline? I mean, how do, Pastor, how do you put it all together? My answer, I don't know. I know this, it says, our fathers disciplined us for a short time as they thought best. So I say frequently to my, parents, my kids, they know that. I'm saying, I'm doing as I think best. God is better than me. Okay? Trust in your father. But this is what I think is right now. I am not lowering the standard on that thing that you've done, but I'm giving you grace right now. Oh, they, get, they love grace, that kind of grace. All right? Give me grace. I want grace. Yeah, I understand. Well, there's other kinds of grace. You know, There's the grace that teaches you to say no to ungodliness. We're going to work on that one today. That's the grace you'll get today. So, but it's hard. You, this is humbling. Come to God and, and bring him this list and say, oh God, teach me to parent because I don't know what to do and I need your help. Twelfth, favoritism. Favoritism, showing preference to one child over the rest or over others. Clear example of this in the Bible, Jacob with Joseph. It says it straight in the text. Genesis 37, 3, look it up. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Your eyebrows go up at that point. I mean, he's setting Joseph up to be murdered. Now, I'm not in any way condoning the murderous jealousy that was in the, in the hearts of his brothers. But I think the pattern of the royal, the rich coat. Do you remember when Esau showed up with 400 armed men to greet his brother after he'd been away for a long time? Remember that? Hey, we're going to have a family reunion. I just happened to bring along 400 soldiers to help us celebrate. You know, um, it was a very tough night. And Joseph, uh, Jacob, sorry, spent the night wrestling with the angel. And then the next night, he, the next day, he got ready to meet Esau. And he put his children in concentric circles almost of preference. The slave women and their children were outer circle. Then Leah and her ch- children next. And then Rachel and Joseph on the inner circle. Well, I mean, what does that say to you if you're one of the other kids? So favoritism can be provocative to children. And finally, failure of parents to sacrifice cheerfully for their children. Oh, what a burden you are to me. (laughs) That's the message. It's like, no, that's not the message. The message is what a blessing you are. Do you know how blessed I am to have you in my life? And so there's a Bible verse in the 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15. Children should not have to save up for parents, but parents for their children. 
so I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Now that's Paul the Apostle speaking to the Corinthian church, but he's speaking in the idea of parenting. I'm very gladly spending everything that I have to give it to you. All right, so that's the negative. Let's, this is a good time, I think, for fathers to just, and mothers to just reflect and as needed, repent and ask God to forgive you. And if you feel like you've been parenting in a way that's not been helpful, then just ask God to give you grace. Now, in the short time I have left, now I'm going to resume preaching on parenting when I get back. I did not want to do this, but there are lots of things I want to say about marks of regeneration, how to parent your children toward conversion, and how to know that they're converted. I want to talk about child baptism and all that. That will be after I return to the pulpit. But let me uh, talk about the positives here briefly, and we'll get into them a little more next time. The positives. The three words given us here are nourish, train, and admonish, all in the Lord. But instead, nourish them or bring them up in the nurture or training and admonition, I think is the best translation of that word, in the Lord. All right, so first of all, all parenting is to be done in the Lord. As a subset of the spirit-filled life, as a subset, we're do- it's done as Christians. We're, we're as, as a prisoner for the Lord, he said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So your parenting should be worthy of your calling. You should be Christian parents. And then again, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. So Spirit-filled parenting, that's what we're looking for. Spirit-filled parenting. So we're not looking for just mere morality. We're, we're, we're bringing them up in the Lord. Uh, we know there are all kinds of moral instructions we can give them. Have you ever looked online, George Washington's Rules of Civility? Okay, look that up. He teaches you not to spit into the fire. Okay? I guess that's really important. It was important back then. Don't spit in the fire. Um, Or all kinds of things. How to eat in a mannerly way. How to not turn your back on someone speaking to you. How to deal with, um, you know, bodily fluids, frankly. George Washington is very detailed about these rules of civility. Well, look, we Christian parents, we're going to embrace that basic level of philosophical morality, too. We're going to teach people how to be good citizens, good students, good people, holding the doors for people, mannered at the table. We're going to teach them all that. But this goes so far beyond that. We're going to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So all things pointed toward the Lord Jesus Christ, focused on Jesus, with a constant reference to Christ and his shed blood. And we're going to nourish them, it says. Nourish your children. It's translated bring them up, but rear them, raise them. But it's a feeding image here. Ephesians 5.29 speaks of that, uh, about what the husband does or what Christ does for the church. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Same word. So there's a sense of nourishing your children. Feeding them. Now, of course, a godly father will see to it that his children don't go to bed hungry. So you're going to physically feed them. But especially you're going to feed them in the word. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're going to feed them the word of God. And fundamentally, you're going to feed them the bread of life who is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You're going to feed them. So nourish them. Feed their souls. We're going to talk more about this next time, but I'm just giving you an overview. Nourish them. Secondly, train them. Train them. The Greek word here is paideia. It's a a concept of systematic preparation of the child for adult life. Shape their minds. Get them ready for everything they're going to do in life, especially spiritually. 
It begins with language, the mother tongue. This is where the invaluable assistance of a godly mother who teaches the mother tongue comes in. The infant learns how to speak, and then beyond that, full education. You know, just getting them ready. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Luke 2.52. You're getting them ready for every phase of their lives. Now, next time I'm going to say some things about education. Um, there's a lot to be said about education. We homeschool our kids. Um, I think the divide between government school and homeschool has never been wider. I think it's getting even wider. There's also private school. Those are the three basic options. You know, there's a, a hybrid as well, but you're going to have some weighty decisions to make, especially as government gets more and more aggressive in its worldview. You're going to have some weighty decisions to make. There's some godly brothers and sisters in pub- public school. Uh, some of our own church members have given their lives to pouring out good education in the government school setting. But things are getting harder and harder for them to do what they would really like to do and for parents to make wise decisions. So we'll talk more about that next time. But we're going to the idea, the training of a child, and then finally the instruction of the child. We'll talk more about this again. But the idea here is correction in the face of sin. You're going to be admonishing them, showing them their sins, and especially what will happen if they continue in patterns of sin. So fathers raising their teenage sons, mothers raising the daughters, parents raising their children, getting ready for the heavy things that they're going to face in life and dealing all along uh, with their sins. So as I said, we're going to stop there. I'm going to talk next time more about these three words. I'm going to talk more about marks of regeneration. And we'll talk also about child baptism and just the, the, the difficulties, challenges, and interesting uh, aspects of that uh, for a church. But uh, be praying for, uh, for us as we do that. So that'll be about in maybe about seven weeks um, after my writing sabbatical is done. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for all the things that we have been learning through Ephesians. We thank you for these very clear instructions that come from your word. And Lord, I pray that you would be strengthening right now fathers and mothers in the sometimes seemingly overwhelming challenges of parenting. And I pray that you would be raising up before our very eyes a generation of godly um, children of sons and daughters who will embrace Christ at a very early age and begin living out patterns of obedience in their lives because their parents are raising them up and obeying this pattern. Father, I pray right now for any that are here that do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they didn't have a godly mother and father to teach them the gospel, or maybe they did and they've been straying. Thank you for bringing them here today. I pray that you would reach out to them now through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might know the salvation that he alone can work. Father, we thank you for this time to assemble, to worship, and for the ministry of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.